Good evening. Take those Bibles that you brought and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Would you pray with me as we start tonight? Lord, we, um, we quietly come and we ask you to survey us. Look us over, Lord. Search us deeply. You know us absolutely. Lord, you know that some tonight are, are burdened, discouraged. Crushed might even be a better term for some. Depressed would fit others. Father, we roll all of those burdens that we have deliberately onto you at this moment. We're not sufficient, Lord, to handle them. We are feeling the end of our capacity. And so, Father, we, in obedience to you, since you told us to, to do that, we, we trust you, Lord. We push all of that onto your shoulders because you are able, because you are gracious, and because, as we're about to read, you are the God of all comfort, the one who comforts us in all of our tribulation, so that we may be comforted and then give that to others. Lord, open up our minds tonight. I pray that we'd learn. And as we learn, we would have more equipment to teach, to build up others. Lord, I believe you have something especially for every single person you've brought. Show us what that is. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have email? Raise your hands. Isn't it great? I mean... It's a hassle in one sense because we get so much of it. But if it's not email, it's junk mail, so we're going to get something. What I love about email is that it's so, it's so quick, it's so easy, it's so instant. You don't have to find an envelope, you don't have to lick a stamp, you don't have to get a piece of paper, put it in a typewriter, or write it by hand. You just type it out, push send, and boom, it's there. Now, Paul didn't have email. If he did, the New Testament would look probably very different. He had snail mail and uh, didn't have the U.S. Postal Service or any of the other uh, accoutrements of society that we have today. He had special delivery by a person on foot usually or sent by ship and then by foot. It took weeks, months for communication to get from one place to another. Therefore... When Paul wrote letters, he had to make sure that he embodied all that he wanted to say to that group, that he conveyed a full instruction or warning or solving of a problem mixed with a full set of emotions, concerns, affection, so that people in reading the letter would have the full picture because he couldn't just push send and then get an email the next day and then send something back. It would take months before he'd see them. 
We're looking at 2 Corinthians tonight, but in reality we could call it 3 Corinthians. Because if you remember our study in 1 Corinthians, we said that 1 Corinthians was actually 2 Corinthians. (laughs) You're going, huh? Well, when Paul was at Corinth, after he left, he heard there were problems going on, and so he sent a young man, his protege named Timothy, a man whom he said he was like-minded with in the ministry to, to help solve those problems. And Paul evidently wrote, shortly after that, a letter to them, a letter we don't have. Though it might be incorporated in 1 Corinthians, it was a severe kind of a letter. And Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what we call 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I have written you a letter telling you not to keep company with immoral persons. So that 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. Now, we don't have that severe letter, that first instructional letter, what we have, what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. And that's where we start tonight. 1 Corinthians was written... If you remember, because Paul heard a report, there was a family in Corinth, the household of Chloe, who was concerned that the church that they were going to, their local fellowship, the church they loved, was being split apart by division. So they reported that to Paul. And at the same time, the Corinthian church itself was riddled with problems, issues, questions. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians a lengthy letter on solving the myriad of problems present in the Corinthian church and helping to heal those issues and answer the questions. 2 Corinthians is very different. This letter that we're looking at is different in tone. It is is not harsh. There is concern in it, but it's not harsh. It's not as corrective as 1 Corinthians. You might say here Paul opens his heart up and you get to really see what makes the guy tick emotionally, personally. He's very affectionate with the Corinthians. He is concerned, as I mentioned, and we'll tell you why in a few minutes. But he really opens up his heart to them, exposes how he feels. It's filled with warmth. It's filled with comfort. It's filled with encouragement. In fact, there's a key word that appears in chapter 1. It's the word comfort or encouragement. It all depends on what translation you have. He's called the God of all comfort, who comforts us. And you're going to find that word carried throughout the entire book of 2 Corinthians. That's one of the themes, one of the purposes for which he wrote the book, to encourage them. We need more encouragers today. The world beats us up enough, discourages us enough. Bills pile in upon us and discourage us enough. We need encouragement. Twenty-nine times in the book, Paul uses the term paraklesis. That's the noun form. Let's see, if I'm right, 18 times he uses the noun form, 11 times He uses the verb form, parakaleo, to be comforted or consoled. So it's one of the themes of the book. God comforts, we ought to comfort. Here's some review. 
Paul stayed in the city of Corinth on a second missionary journey about 18 months. It was the longest he stayed in any city except one other city, which was what? Ephesus. Somebody whispered that as if maybe I'm right. You're right, Ephesus, where he spent about three years. But in Corinth, he spent about 18 months establishing a church. Um, You know, he had a method. He would go into a place... He would sort of uh, establish himself in an occupation. He was a tent maker. And in Corinth, he found a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, married couple, cute names together, they rhymed. They were tent makers by trade. Paul joined himself with them. And from that, he established his base. He would go into the synagogue every Friday night, Saturday, on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, and he'd tell them, as a Jewish rabbi, how Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy. He is their long-awaited Messiah. Well, they put up with this for a while until Paul's good buddies, his, his comrades, his uh, fellow ministers came from Macedonia down to Achaia, down to the city of Corinth, Timothy, as I mentioned, and Silas. And uh, for some reason, their presence encouraged him to be even more bold in the synagogue. So his his sermons got more fiery every Sabbath. Well, eventually, they kicked him out of the synagogue. And uh, he met in a house next door to the synagogue at a guy who is mentioned in the book of Acts. His name was Titius Justus. He was a God-fearing Gentile. He had attached himself to the synagogue, one who wanted to worship God, but because he was expelled from the synagogue listening to Paul, Paul started a home Bible study. The church began as a nucleus of Jewish believers, Messianic believers. But soon, because Corinth had way more Greeks, way more Gentiles than Jews, it became a a pretty hefty Gentile fellowship. Some Jews, some people with a religious background... But for the most part, it was overshadowed by, but, by just garden-variety pagans who were saved. It was an interesting mix. Most of them were what we would call lower class. They were not people of nobility. They were not people of high education. Just working class, low caste. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, You see your calling, brethren. There are not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh who are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He was speaking about their church. Some wealthy, some noble, some highly educated, and many who were not. It was a mix. And they had a sordid background. Many of those Gentiles who were saved were saved out of very wicked lifestyle. Listen to the description. I'll remind you of it out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners will enter the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Now that makes for an interesting group of people. Some religious, many who came from very wicked backgrounds. It also makes for a a group of people that are bound for problems. 
because having spent so much of their time away from Christ, disobedient to Christ, that's what they're used to. Now they're called to not only repent from their sins, but get along with everybody else who had wicked backgrounds. So there were problems. It was tough. Do you remember when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and he he opened the scroll of Isaiah? And in their hearing, he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, bind up those who are captive, release those who are bound. Did you hear the nouns in those sentences? Poor, captive, bound. That makes for a very messy group of people. Such was the church at Corinth. Saved, but very rough. Paul had a heart of love for them. It's very evident in this um, in this great book of 2 Corinthians. So we begin with uh, verse 1, but... um, Well, let's begin with verse 1, then I'll, I'll fill in some blanks. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let let me just remind you a little bit of of, um, why Corinth was such a key place. I think that Paul had certain places in mind that he wanted to visit and wanted the gospel to penetrate because of of the kind of place they were. Corinth was one of them. It was a very key city. It was on the the crossroads of trade from east to west. Very interesting. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you actually may want to turn and find Corinth in the map that talks about the journeys of Paul. Paul. And you'll see that it's situated in a very interesting spot. It's in the southern part of Greece. In ancient times, it was called Achaia. It's mentioned here in your text. In more modern times, it is known, that area of southern Greece, as the Peloponnesus or the Peloponnesian Peninsula. There was a tiny little strip of land called an isthmus, three and a half miles wide, that separated two bodies of water. You can see it on your map, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. Corinth was right there on that little isthmus, that little piece of land. Now, ships could do one of two things. They could, A, sail all the way around Cape Malais, which is that cape on the bottom of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and go from the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea, from one side to the other. Or, if they could just figure out a way to cross that little strip of land, three and a half miles, they don't have to sail. It was also dangerous to sail around Cape Malaya. There was, a, there was an old saying that the sailors used to tell each other, he who sails around Cape Malaya must first make out his will. They'd lost many a ship, many a sailor, many a captain to those seas. So, this is what they did. 
If the ship was small enough, they would hoist it out of the water, put it on wheels, on rollers, and roll it across land three and a half miles. It's a lot easier. If the ship was too large, they would unload the cargo at one port. Porters would carry the cargo to the other side, to the other port, and put it on another ship, and they'd sail east or west. Adriatic or Aegean, depending on where they were going. So you can see that that city of Corinth was very crucial to trade east and west, communication east and west. If the gospel could penetrate Corinth, if a great church could be established there, if a gospel witness could go there, ooh, the potential to spread out to other parts of the world was incredible. So on Paul's missionary journey, he went there. There was another side to Corinth, and I alluded to it when I quoted chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. It was a seedy side. A seedy side. Uh, Corinth had, down in the middle of town, a, a big piece of rock, a little hill called the Acropolis. And there was a temple on the Acropolis in Corinth to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. She was worshipped in a very interesting fashion that would attract a lot of men from all over the Roman Empire. Instead of having priests in the temple, they had a thousand priestesses in the temple. The priestesses, in the name of their religious cult, would descend the Acropolis at night, and they would find young men to worship with. They were temple prostitutes, and men would find them give money to the prostitutes who would take the money to fund the temple of Aphrodite. And so a term was coined because it was such a famous place for for that debauchery, drunkenness, sexuality. Corinthia Zethi, to play the Corinthian. And to call somebody a Corinthian, it was like a cuss word. You, you Corinthian, come on man, put up your dukes. It was, a, it was a slanderous term. It meant you're a, you're a drunk, you're worthless, you're debauched. You have no self-control. And yet, isn't it, this is great, the grace of God reached down to that city and a church was established. Problems, yes, but potential, wow. And so Paul spent time there, invested sending people there, wrote letters there. Some say there weren't three, but some say there were four letters of Paul. I don't know. I don't have them, so I couldn't tell you. It's just an interesting argument. But obviously a lot of time was invested in a church that had so much potential. Now Paul, in verse 1, this is very typical of this guy, introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know that an apostle simply means somebody sent out to be a rep, a representative. I'm Paul. I'm the company rep for the kingdom of God. I am sent out by God, as he said to the Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not by the will of man, not by man, but from God. Now, in one sense, in a broad sense, every one of you is an apostolos, a representative. You're a kingdom rep. You're either a good rep or a bad rep, a good witness or a bad witness, but you are a witness for the kingdom of God wherever you go. But in in this sense in which Paul writes, in the narrower sense, the term apostle most often referred to 
a group of 13 guys, the 12 apostles that were with Jesus, minus Judas, replaced by Matthias, and Paul, who was designated the apostle to the Gentiles. And he himself said, I'm not less than than any of the other apostles. And there were certain qualifications, and Paul met them. Paul was considered by the church to be a great apostle. And uh, one of the reasons I think that Paul introduces himself here this way is because his apostleship was being challenged by this very church. Now, let me just tell you why the letter was written. You know, every letter has a purpose. It wasn't just, I'm bored. How are you guys doing? First of all, the letter was written to encourage the church at Corinth to receive somebody that they had kicked out of their church at, at Paul's beckon. Paul said, Boot them out. If they're unrepentant, kick them out. Disfellowship them. Deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And probably it's what he refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a case of incest where a man was sleeping with his father's wife, his own stepmother. The church knew about it. They were saying, oh, well, let's just be patient in love, wait it out. And Paul says, no, you don't. If he's unrepentant, kick him out. But... Once he repents, bring him in. And this is to encourage the church now to bring the guy who has repented back. Encourage him now. Let him know that there is forgiveness because there is repentance. So to encourage them to forgive and restore. A second reason this letter was written is to explain Paul's change in his travel schedule, his itinerary. Now, it it might sound weird. But there were some in Corinth who had placed such a high expectation on Paul that if he changed his plans, which he says it was by the will of God, if he would dare change his original statement plan, his itinerary, that he, was, he didn't have any integrity, he couldn't be trusted. And they challenged his apostleship. Paul should have been here. He said he'd be here. He didn't care about us. So Paul's explaining to them why the change. A third reason the letter was written was to expect an offering. Not for himself. But there was a group down in Jerusalem, in Judea, who were suffering because they loved Jesus Christ. They, they embraced the Messiah in a Jewish land. That's where the church started. That was the mothership, so to speak. It, it, was the, it was the place that sent everybody else out. Well, now they're suffering because of the economic problems due to the fact that they worship Jesus and they're ostracized. So Paul was taking a collection from some of the Gentile churches, Macedonia, Achaia, going to take them all together and, as a love gift, deliver it to the poor church in Jerusalem, get them on their feet. And finally, there's a fourth reason why the letter was written, and that's to exhort. To exhort them concerning his own apostleship, which was being challenged by a few people gossiping in the church. We can't trust Paul. How do you know what Paul says is accurate? It happens in every church, by the way. And Paul was writing to correct that. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Typical Paul stuff. Eight of his letters he opens exactly the same way. Grace, charis, peace, shalom, or in Greek, irene, Combining two greetings, one from east, one from west, grace and peace. What is really cool is this. Check this out. One of the problems in Paul's personal life was because of the Corinthians. 
He loved them. At the same time, they caused him grief. And yet I love the graciousness of Paul. He didn't say, now, concerning how much you bug me. He's so gracious. Grace to you. Peace to you. It's, it's a lesson that we ought to remember on how to handle difficult people. People that fire at you. People that blame you. People that curse you. Listen, you want a new strategy to handle them? Next time you see them, say grace to you, peace to you. It'll, it'll drive them nuts. Not that you're trying to do that, but it just will. What do you mean grace and peace? What do you mean you, you love me, you'll forgive me? Do you remember uh, in the Old Testament when young David was playing his music and soothing the savage heart of King Saul? And Saul, filled with jealousy and kind of out of his wits one day, took a, a spear and he, he threw it all the way across the room to pin David to the wall, pin the musician to the wall. What did David do? He ducked. He ducked. Good thinking. Spear's coming. Duck. (laughs) Have you ever stopped to think that David, at the moment the spear struck the wall, perhaps just above his head, he could have looked at it and thought, now I got it. Now the spear's in my hand. Now you're a sitting duck. And remember, I'm really good with the sling. I'm very accurate with things like this. You demonized king, I'm going to nail you to the wall. No, he ducked. And when he threw it again later on, he ducked again. Good wisdom. People are firing at you, duck. Grace to you, peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Look back at what we just read. I want you to notice a couple of words. Tribulation is one. Trouble is another. Sufferings is another. Have you discovered that suffering, tribulation, trouble, discouragement, is no respecter of persons? In fact, even those who walk very close to God, like Paul, fell prey to it. Or David. One of the reasons you love the Psalms so much is because you can relate to them. Here's a guy who was honest. More honest than some of us sometimes. He didn't come to church and go, oh, praise God, I feel so good today. He'd say, God, where are you? How come you're so far away from helping me? Why are you cast down, O my soul? He was very, very honest. And so we read them and we go, oh, somebody else is going through that. Even a very godly man went through that. Paul went through that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is perhaps my favorite dead guy. 
You know, I, 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 love, I love books. I especially love old books. And I love the old dead guys. They just say it like nobody else. And Spurgeon is perhaps my favorite. I have some old Spurgeon books. I even uh, have some of his old sermons that he, he penned by hand and signed. I just love Spurgeon memorabilia. Listen to what he said. Great preacher. I am the subject of depression of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Now, I'm telling you that because Paul is going to say, I was pressed out of measure. I thought I was going to die. I really thought I was going to die. And then a few chapters later, he's going to list all of the trials that came his way and how he felt about them and how alienated he felt because of them. But what I'd like you to notice here is how he begins his section on suffering and comfort with the term, Blessed be the God the Father of all mercies, God of all comfort. He begins it with praise. He's going to talk about suffering. He's going to talk about trouble. He talks about affliction. He begins the discussion with praise. Why? You know the answer. When you praise the Lord, when you focus on God, your perspective changes. You've heard the little saying, prayer changes everything. I'd be more specific. Praise changes everything. You know, we often do look at the negative side of life so much that that's all we see. We are so much like the child who took the telescope and turned it around and looked out the wrong end and everything was so far away. And we look at the telescope the wrong way and we look up to heaven and we go, God, I can't find you. Where are you? You're so far away. And praise, what praise does when we focus on God and his power is it it takes the telescope and turns it around. Oh, there you are, bright and clear. You remember in Psalm 73, the psalmist, I think it was Asaph, He said, as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps almost slipped. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, it chewed me up. I looked at wicked people and I saw, gosh, it looks like they're they're doing better than godly people. It looks like it even looks like God's blessing their lives. I'm envious of them. I want to be what they are. I want to have what they have. They don't seem to have the trials that I have as a child of God. And, and, and the psalmist said, you know, th- this just did me in, man. How can a God of love allow his children to go through this? And as you follow the psalm down, this is what it says. Until I went into the sanctuary, then I understood their end. That's a change in perspective. Going into the sanctuary, singing songs of worship that tell us truth, reading the Bible that reminds us of God and truth and the end of the wicked and the end of the godly, he started thinking about all of those boastful, arrogant, wicked people who seem to have it made here on this earth, and he thought, oh, but I know where they're going. I considered their end. I wasn't envious of them anymore. And I was thankful for what I had. Praise changes things. Blessed be God. I love how he begins. Who comforts us, verse 4, 
in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. Something fundamental. It's, it's so fundamental, I think we pass over it, and we need to be reminded of it. This verse brings it up. God allows his children to suffer. God allows his children to suffer. Now, some of you may not believe that. And if you don't believe that and you're determined, no, I don't believe that God allows it, you might, you might want to just cross this verse out completely. Just negate it. Pretend it's not there. And there's a whole lot of text just like it you're going to have to deal with. So you might as well have the pen handy. I, I still meet people who say, I bind every negative thought and every negative thing that happens. Well, you know what? Then you're binding God's plan for you. There are ten Greek words for suffering. Paul uses five of them in this letter alone. Different Greek words that express suffering, tribulation, trouble, pain, anguish for believers. And he uses himself as an example. One word, the most common word used here in verse 4 is the Greek word philipsis, which means to be pressed, to be pressured, to be in a confined space. This is the stuff that, that well, everyday life is made out of. Circumstances that make you feel hemmed in, hedged in, trapped, a job, a relationship, a commitment, uh, a house payment. You feel strapped, man. You feel confined. That's thlipsis. But in verse 5 and verse 6 is another word. Notice in verse 5 it says the sufferings of Christ. That's a different word. Pathema. Suffering. Not, not to be constricted in, in the normal course of life that we all go through, here's a very unique word to the Christian, pathema. And the term in verse 5 is pathemata to Christu, the sufferings of Christ. So, on one hand, you've got the normal circumstances of daily life and commitment, that's thlipsis, but if you're a Christian and you serve Jesus Christ, you also have suffering because you are a Christian, pathema. You're a target. Satan doesn't like Christians. And so he gets people who are not Christians to hassle those who are Christians. Why do you believe that? That's so dumb. Why don't you party with us? You don't have any fun. What's wrong with you? All of that stuff is pathema. The more vocal you are, the more godly you live outwardly, the more pathema you get. Both of those together. This also gives us insight into why God allows us to have trials. God, why am I going through this? Well, because in a couple months, you're going to meet somebody who's going through the same thing, and they're going to need you to tell them how you did it. You're going to help them. You're going to be comforted. You're going to learn a lesson from this. Now, God doesn't tell you that in advance, but he does here. So that you can help out others who are going through the same thing. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? And just think about it for a moment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story. If you went to Sunday school, you know it well. Well, you know that those three 
Hebrew children, as they're called, those young Hebrew men, got tossed into a fiery furnace. You know why? Because a huge statue was built on the plain of Dura in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar made an edict that everybody in the empire needed to bow down when the band played. Bow down and worship. Give allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. He's in control of the world. He's the world leader. And everybody did. The band kicked up. Everybody bowed, except for these three guys. They just sort of stood there. And so they told Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, there's these three stubborn Hebrew kids that won't bow to your stupid image. He didn't say stupid image, but I inserted my own thought. Well, who are they? Oh, they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bring them here. Now, boys, I understand that you're not bowing to my image. And we have an edict that if you don't bow to my image, you get thrown into the fiery furnace. Their answer was classic. Well, King, you're right. We didn't bow to your image. We're not going to bow to your image because we don't serve your pagan gods. And uh, we trust that our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. He's certainly going to deliver us even if we die from you. Now, that only served to anger Nebuchadnezzar. So he commanded the furnace be turned up seven times more. Increased the heat seven times. He was so livid. Commanded them to be tossed in. They were tossed in with their full wardrobe, trousers, Hawaiian shirts, everything. They were just tossed into the fiery furnace. It's the new skip version that I read from. It's a little bit different than yours. And then what Nebuchadnezzar saw shocked him. He said, didn't I throw three guys in there? Troy, you threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I see four. And one looks like the Son of God. Now, what's really cool is that they didn't come out of the fiery furnace till they were commanded by the king. They, they, were, they were with God. They were fellowshipping with Jesus. They didn't want to come out. They weren't singed. Obviously, it wasn't too hot for them. But here's the point. Now, they could have, if they wouldn't have been there that day, if they thought, let's just not go out. Everybody's out on that plane. He's going to blow those trumpets. Let's just, let's just leave. Won't even show up today. They would have escaped the trial. Had they escaped the trial, they wouldn't have been able to fellowship with Jesus in the most intimate terms in that fiery furnace. He was with them. That was the lesson they needed to learn. In the worst part of it, in the trial, in the fiery trial, literally, you'll be comforted. And you and I often cry out, Oh, God, take me out of this fiery furnace. And God says, If I do, you'll miss the great opportunity, the great lesson, the intimate fellowship that we can only have when you suffer. Oh, please, no, please, no. I love you too much to say yes. God comforts us. God's with us. Something else in verse 5, and I'm spending longer than I anticipated, but you know me, so it shouldn't be too (laughs) astonishing. For as, verse 5, for as, and I want you to see this, this is a key to this section. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation abounds through Christ. There are two words employed, for as, kathos, 
For as the sufferings, and then after the comma, so, hutos, kathos, hutos, for as so. Now these are terms in the Greek language that express a comparison in which the second element matches the first. The trials, the sufferings, the pain, the anguish, the hurt, sometimes they seem to overflow, don't they? The way God has designed it is that it will be matched by the same kind of comfort that is needed for those trials. It is a perfect match. God knows that you need balance in your life, so he'll prescribe trials, fire, to mature you. But he also knows that it'll break your back incessantly. You need a relief. You need a break. You need God's comfort. Whether it's a Christian friend, whether it's a text or a song or some reminder of his love, you need comfort. But they are matched. One matches the other. It's a principle you see through the scripture. On 1 Corinthians, he says, No temptation has taken us but such is common to man, but God is faithful and he won't allow us to be tempted above what we're able to endure. He always gives a way of escape. In 1 Peter, Peter talks about the manifold trials that we face. In other words, a whole bunch. Manifold is sometimes translated literally many colored. Trials of all different sizes and shapes and colors that you go through. Manifold. A few verses down, Paul, Peter writes about the manifold grace of God. You have manifold trials, you got manifold grace. You have many colors of trials, and for each color, God has a color of his grace to match. It's a perfect match. Perfect comparison. Understand this. When God puts you in the furnace, so to speak, allows you to go down into the fiery furnace, he's got his eye on the thermometer and his hand on the thermostat. He didn't go, (laughs) oh, I better go. He's there to watch. He didn't want you to be a crispy critter. A Krispy Kreme, maybe, but not a Krispy Critter. <laughs> He's always watching. He knows what you can take. And again, what is noteworthy about Paul, and I don't see it with many other believers, is that Paul speaks here about trials, suffering, being pressed. But his main focus is not on the pressure, on the trial, on the pain, but on the comfort. His main focus isn't the black dot on the white sheet. It's the white sheet. It's the great comfort that we have. It's not the negative, it's the positive. And our hope for you is steadfast, he continues, verse 7, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Let me encourage you, if tonight you're, you're in a period that you read this and you say, that's me, this was written for me. I am now going through a trial officially. I am suffering. Look for consolation. Keep your eye on the lookout for it. God promised that just as the pain, so the consolation. Look for it. And we'll see some keys to that and how to do that in just a moment. But you know what? When you are comforted, then use it. Then use it. Your trial isn't a dumb accident. It's a divine appointment. Don't let it go to waste. 
You know, the nature of suffering is such that it's, it's so absorbing, it's so consuming that we, we often focus on ourselves. I'm in pain, I'm in suffering, this hurts. How am I going to pay my bills? Why did my husband do this to me? It's very self-absorbing. Paul's whole point is that the suffering that I'm going through is for others. I'm going to let God use this to help other people. It's the perspective to have. Suffering builds comforters. Pain creates comforters. When my brother died and my father died, those two incidences in my life did something inside of me that allowed me to perform funerals like I never performed them before with a depth and a level of compassion that wasn't possible before. I didn't go through it before. But having lost two vital, close persons shapes a person into a comforter. I was uh, talking to a gal who uh, had a younger brother, and she, she came to me and she complained about her younger brother. He's so insensitive. He's so cocky, so arrogant. Doesn't care about anybody else. And I know the guy. I knew him really well. And um, I said, that's because he hadn't suffered very much. She goes, what? So he hadn't suffered very much. He is that way because he hasn't gone through enough. He hadn't got beat up enough. And so tribulation works endurance, patience, roots, depth. After a while, life beats up on you enough and you have things taken away from you and you are crushed. You look at people who are crushed differently. And you become a a very valuable tool in the hands of God. Spurgeon said, God gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. I like that. Now, Paul personalized it, verse 8. For we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Now, Asia isn't Asia as you know it, not Thailand, China. It's the western part of Asia Minor. We would call it Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is the capital. When we were in the area of Ephesus, Asia Minor, that we were burdened beyond measure. Okay, this is Paul, your favorite apostle and mine. Burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, we know what happened to Paul when he was in Asia Minor, don't we? We remember Acts chapter 19, don't we? When he went down to Ephesus, and while he was there, great miraculous things happened. They would put handkerchiefs, sweatbands on Paul, and, and after touching Paul, they would touch sick people, and they get healed. Created a big commotion. And so he was gaining momentum, notoriety able to preach the gospel because of that. And then, in the same city, there were seven brothers, seven sons of Sceva, this Jewish son of a Jewish priest, who decided to play the exorcist and uh, went to somebody who was demon-possessed and said this, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, they weren't converted themselves, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out of that person. 
And the demon spoke and said, well, we know Paul and we know Christ, but we don't know you, and just wailed on the guys. News came through all the regions about what had happened, the miracles and this weird exorcism thing. And the scripture says that the people of that area took their books, their amulets, their charms, and they burned it all. Saying, we don't want this paganism, we want to worship your God. Which began to hurt the most vital part of the Ephesian anatomy. People's pocketbooks. They started losing revenue suddenly because people were worshiping Diana, this great goddess of the Ephesians. They weren't doing it anymore. And so Demetrius, who was a silversmith in Ephesus, got his buddies together and said, this Paul guy is stirring up trouble here and everywhere else in Asia Minor, saying that these are false gods. And what's going to happen, guys, is that our own temple of Diana is going to be by the wayside. Nobody's going to pay for it anymore. People are turning to this Jesus guy. So... They grabbed a guy named Gaius and Aristarchus, companions of Paul, brought them into this huge theater in Ephesus. I've stood there. It's huge. 30,000, 40,000-seat theater. And uh, the townspeople came in, and they chanted, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two solid hours, they chanted this. Grabbed Paul's companions, roughed them up, and Paul said, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to set the record straight. And the people who were around Paul said, no, you won't do that. Don't go there. They'll kill you. And it was wise counsel. He didn't do it, but it created a huge problem for Paul. He was, he was pressed beyond measure. And he thought probably, I'm going to die. I have the inward conviction. I, my life flashes before me. This is it. I'm going to die. I had the sentence of death in myself. Notice this, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I see some some insight into there, into trials. Why would God allow us to go through times where we feel like we're we're at our wit's end? I'm going to die. So that we'll begin to trust God who raises the dead. You know that sometimes... We don't even talk to God until we're at our wit's end. You know, sometimes we forget all about God until we're so pressed, so crushed. We haven't been talking to Him for a long time. And we go through this horrible trial. Oh, God! And it's as if God says, I haven't heard from you in a long time. Good to see you again. (laughs) And that's why God so often lets us go to our wit's end. So we'll call on him. We'll trust him. When I was a kid, I remember telling my dad, I'm running away. I'm leaving home. And you know what? I'll never forget it. My dad let me go. (laughs) He said, all right, (laughs) go. And I thought, really? (laughs) You know, I didn't expect it. So I packed up my stuff, headed out the door. And, you know, I I stuck with it. I, I was out there for at least a couple hours. But it grew dark, and I was a few blocks away, and then like a few miles away. I got pretty scared. And I came back with a very different attitude. My dad let me go, because he knew this kid has to go to his wit's end. He has to feel a little scared. That we might learn 
that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So God doesn't always shelter us from the storm. He uses the storm to shove us into the harbor of his love. Who delivered us? We have time for these verses, and then we close. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us? You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. God does deliver. Paul says that. He he delivered us from a great death. He does deliver. He's going to deliver. God delivers. Now, God doesn't always deliver immediately. God delivers eventually. But God doesn't always deliver immediately. When God delivers us, God doesn't deliver our way. And we don't like that. But he delivers his way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. In Acts chapter 12, Peter was sprung out of prison. He escaped jail. In the same chapter, James was beheaded. But both of them were delivered by God. Oh, it wasn't the way James thought God should deliver him. I'm sure the church didn't like the way God delivered him. But you know what? James never suffered another trial ever again. James never shed another tear ever again. He never had a sad experience ever again. He was rewarded. He was in God's presence and he's still there. Very happy. Both of them were delivered. One through death. And one to continue his ministry to the end. And that was Peter. No, God delivers. Something else to notice, verse 11, God delivers in response to prayer. You also helping together in prayer for us. God accomplishes many things by our prayers. Many times God will wait until we communicate to him, then we'll do it in res- he'll do it in response to our prayer so that the next thing will follow, as it says in this verse, we'll thank him, we'll praise him, we'll glorify him. Helping together, great term. It means to spread the load out. It's to carry a burden. Picture those boats that they carry across the isthmus or or the cargo they carry. The more people to spread it out, the better. Help together. Workers spreading the load. Do you have somebody that spreads the load for you, carries the weight? You can say, pray for me, would you? This is serious. I've got to talk to you about this. A friend, a companion. A brother or sister, that's how the body of Christ is designed. And then God delivers that he might be glorified. It says that thanks might be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. God delivers. God delivers in response to our prayers. And when God delivers, it's so that we can say, thank you, Lord. I glorify you, Lord. I respond to you. I wonder if that happens enough. Those daily mercies that God gives to stop and thank him. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for this house, this apartment. Thanks for this car. It's beat up. It's leaking oil. But it took me from point A to point B tonight. 
Thank you for the meal. It wasn't filet mignon, but you know what? I'm alive. Thank you, Lord. And thank you for answering my prayers. Speaking of prayer, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight for a very personal letter and very clear lessons about how to approach people, about how to approach trials, about what things to focus on in the daily afflictions of life and the afflictions because we belong to Christ. And to realize, Lord, that there are going to be times when life seems absolutely out of control, and it is, but it's in your control. I pray that we, Lord, like Isaiah, would see the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, gloriously in charge, so that we wouldn't despair. I pray that you'd teach us how to see, what to focus on, what to look at in life, what to consider, what to to keep in the, the forefront of our focus, that the telescope might be turned the right way and we might see you, the God who is in control, the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. Thank you, Lord, for your comfort. Thank you, Lord, for the trials that you prescribe that come our way. We just pray they wouldn't be wasted. We pray that you'd use them in our lives and then use them in the lives of others, that we can encourage and comfort. In Jesus' name.